Hi, everybody. We have something special for you today. You may know Matt Potts from one of our other podcasts, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, in addition to being one of my best friends, is one of the most thoughtful and brilliant minds on the theme of forgiveness. He's a professor at both Harvard University and Harvard Divinity School and focuses on theology in his work. And he's just written a book called Forgiveness, an Alternative Account. And today we have an excerpt from his book. He is reading to you from the introduction of his book. I do want to give a trigger warning. He does talk about gun violence in the section that he's going to read aloud for you. So if that is not something that you would like to listen to, we totally understand. And if it is, I hope that you enjoy this truly brilliant excerpt from Matt's book. Matt, if you're listening, congratulations on forgiveness, an alternative account, and everybody else, we hope that you enjoy it. This is a selection from my new book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, published by Yale University Press. On June 17, 2015, a 21-year-old white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into historic Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and joined 13 others for the Wednesday evening Bible study. He sat next to the pastor, Clementa Pickney, and listened for a while and then bickered with the group over their interpretation of Scripture. When the congregants bowed their heads and began to pray at the close of the study, Roof rose, withdrew a concealed handgun, and began murdering the people who had welcomed him into their spiritual home. He killed nine members of the congregation and was quickly arrested. At his arraignment, several but not all of the victim's surviving family members offered forgiveness to Roof through a closed-circuit television feed to the jail where he had been remanded. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said through tears. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you. Bethane Middleton-Brown, sister of the slain DePayne Middleton doctor, said to Roof, I acknowledge that I am very angry, but we have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. Wanda Simmons, the granddaughter of victim Daniel Simmons, also spoke directly to Roof, saying, Although my grandfather and the other victims died in the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. Observing these public acts of forgiveness during an interview, the writer Tanahasi Coates wondered aloud, is that real? I question the realness of that. If forgiveness is real, then it's a real problem. Many philosophers, theologians, and scholars of religion have grown skeptical of forgiveness's value, its reality, or both. And they do so in part because of dramatic and unsettling examples like the one above. Isn't it a moral hazard of some sort? when a person who remains entirely unrepentant and absolutely allergic to reparations, who still menaces violence and still threatens victims, is offered forgiveness without any condition at all? Why is it so often people of color and people already marginalized by systemic violence upon whom this forgiving responsibility falls? What unjust purpose might the valorization of such suffering serve? Isn't the offer of forgiveness more of a salve to the conscience of power than an instrument of victims' healing? And isn't it a moral outrage to pressure victims into offering this forgiveness, to mandate that those already subject to loss and victimization assume responsibility for redeeming their offenders? Consider the words of the Reverend Anthony Thompson, surviving husband of the Reverend Myra Thompson, who offered forgiveness at Ruth's arraignment, but also later said, If they give Ruth the death penalty, I'm not going to interfere. As far as I'm concerned, he doesn't exist anymore. This is going to be with us for the rest of our life, but Dylan Roof has no place in that. 
Or consider the Reverend Waltrina Middleton, DePayne Middleton doctor's cousin, who wrote on the anniversary of the Charleston shooting in 2020 that, to insist on a narrative of forgiveness is dehumanizing and violent, and it goes against the very nature of lament. As Christians, we celebrate the donning of ashes and sackcloth as a priestly act of lamentation and mourning. Why deny families, in this watershed moment of grief, this right to lament? In this book, I both honor Waltrina Middleton's demanding question and reframe ta Coates's skeptical one. I do so by beginning with these survivors' angry and grief-stricken words, while also attending to the forms of forgiveness they say they have offered, forms that reject hate but not anger, that deny superficial healing and forgetting, and that refuse unearned reconciliation. Instead of the narrative of repair, while Trina Middleton rightly recognizes as too easily imposed upon these statements of public grief, I explore the moral status and potential of Christian lament as itself a practice of forgiveness. I believe the Reverend Middleton is correct. Christian forgiveness does too often deny or diminish grief. I therefore want to ask what a Christian forgiveness that rooted itself in grief would look like and reflect upon the implications for our moral theology. Having observed the lasting grief and anger of these forgiving families, instead of asking, is that forgiveness real? I ask, what if that were real forgiveness? Forgiveness, as it is typically understood, definitionally defies our ethical vocabulary and destabilizes our moral foundations. When a law or code demands some recompense for wrong, how can we at the same time obligate or encourage the setting side of that recompense? Forgiveness resists rationalization. But the adequacy of our moral grammar does not exclusively condition the reality of all our moral acts. Like Theodore Adorno, I assume that moral questions arise only when our moral vocabularies and grammars begin to fail. To wonder about the problematic possibility of forgiveness at all is to presume some limits to our moral language, some gaps in our moral models. And so I am wagering that an adequate depiction or description of forgiveness will depend upon limiting the limits and minding these gaps that it will require the exploration of unsettling examples. I suggest that any real forgiveness will and must challenge the assumptions and test the boundaries of our moral instincts themselves. In other words, I suggest in this book that what forgiveness actually reveals when it strains our moral sense is not its own unreality or impossibility, but the hidden limitations of our moral reasoning. In this book, then, and in light of these troubling examples, I ask, what if forgiveness were real? What would a just and livable forgiveness look like? What if forgiveness allowed for anger and rage and grief? What if it preserved mistrust and could keep a safe distance for its victims? What if forgiveness acknowledged hurt rather than promising healing? What if it uniquely reckoned with the permanence of a wound rather than hastily dressing that wound with a thin reconciliation? If forgiveness did these things, then how might we come to understand the forgiving words of Nadine Collier, Bethane Middleton-Brown, Wanda Simmons, or Anthony Thompson, or even the searing lament of Waltrina Middleton? How might our moral grammar have to evolve in order to answer the question of forgiveness? How would our moral theology change as our grammars thus evolved? What is real forgiveness, really? And do the notions and habits that go by its name in our faith and our philosophy, the practices of pardon that have currency in our moral marketplace, really live up to forgiveness's most distressing and pressing demands. To elaborate a bit, allow me to suggest the following. First, forgiveness is not about feelings. 
We should feel restored or at peace when we forgive, we are told. We believe that when we forgive, we should have moved on, or at least should have put aside our wrath and our resentment. Indeed, for some, a primary purpose of forgiveness is its use as a tool of self-transformation, so that one can allow oneself to move away from damaging or negative emotions such as rage and rancor in the aftermath of wrong. Recently, psychological literature has complicated this picture, distinguishing, for example, the decision to forgive, which wills a behavioral change or commitment, from emotional forgiveness, which signals a change of heart or affect. But I argue that forgiveness has no necessary relation to positive affective change. If forgiveness is simply about what one does, or rather, about what one restrains oneself from doing, then one's feelings needn't enter into it at all. On the contrary, the emotions that follow trauma are always volatile and always remain so for long periods of time. Restraint from revenge likely will mean struggling with bitterness and anger. Emotions are always fleeting. We cannot expect victims of injustice or trauma to feel permanent equanimity after a single momentous decision to forgive. Instead, one should expect that victims and survivors will feel all sorts of emotions in the wake of their trauma, whatever their decisions about forgiveness. Rather than a determination never again to feel rancor or resentment in perpetuity, forgiveness is simply a promise not to act with retaliatory violence when those painful emotions and vengeful desires inevitably and repeatedly arise. What matters with respect to forgiveness is not how I feel about the person who has wronged me, but how I measure and temper my interpersonal response to that wrong. Second, and relatedly, forgiveness is not reconciliation. We presume that forgiveness requires welcoming an offender back with open arms, with restored relation between two parties, even if only momentarily. Indeed, we often use the language of forgiveness and reconciliation interchangeably, but restored relation is, strictly speaking, the work of reconciliation, a work I characterize as crucially distinct from forgiveness. This is for practical as well as theological reasons. Forgiveness can be a good and honorable goal, but it may demand certain concessions or actions between parties that my version of forgiveness, restraint from revenge, need not. Conditions can and should, of course, be met before a perpetrator and victim establish, transform, or restore their relationship. At minimum, the safety of all concerned should be assured. But if all forgiveness demands is the forswearing of vengeance, then it need not carry any specific conditions, not even these basic ones. To be sure, there is a voluminous commentary in both philosophy and theology about the necessity of various conditions, if any, required for a felicitous offer of forgiveness. But I find that these mostly depend upon the collapsing of the distinction between reconciliation and forgiveness. Forgiveness may, in some cases, prove a first step to reconciliation, or it may simply occasion a lasting non-retaliatory estrangement. Some may object that a restraint which lacks the desire to reconcile wants the moral bravado of self-sacrifice so often canonized in Christian thought and practice. But we should be wary of such valorizations and their manipulations by power, I think, for moral and theological reasons. Christians are commanded to forgive, it is true, but it's also clear that full and final reconciliation is ultimately the eschatological work of God and Christ. When bodies and lives are at risk, it seems to me mere restraint is quite saintly enough. We will love our enemies as much as we can with our broken human hearts, but that may not be much, perhaps just enough to keep us at a safe distance. God can love our enemies and us the rest of the way to reconciliation, if and as God so chooses. 
In fact, there may be commendable spiritual humility in declining to collapse forgiveness into reconciliation, because restraint from violence while full and final reconciliation is left to the eschaton can theologically signal the limits of one's own love while recognizing the infinite reach of God's. God loves those we do not or cannot love. And so we intend God's children no harm. We refuse to exact vengeance even when they deserve it, even when we might wish it upon them, for God's sake. And then we keep our peace as we wait for God's infinite love to bridge the painful chasm sin has opened in our lives. It seems to me that the additional step of requiring fully achieved human reconciliation that is fully restored relationship, as opposed to a cautious and estranged non-retaliation that need neither strive nor even hope for reconciliation in this life, misreads the theological tradition in significant ways and with troubling moral consequences. It replaces Christ's work with our own. Earthly reconciliation beckons intimacy, right or wrong, and in this fallen creation it is often obviously wrong, or at least carries unjust dangers and demands. Forgiveness, as I describe it, meanwhile, can turn its cheek while also keeping a safe distance, as it does.